and welcome back to another Ruby Rogues podcast. I'm your host, Charles Maxwood, and this week on our panel, we have, uh, first, I, I like to introduce our guest rogues. We have uh, Stephen Ragnarok. Um, I don't know where he's calling from, but I'll let him introduce himself, and then we'll go on to the other members of the panel. Uh, uh, I'm Stephen. I uh, do Ruby development. I'm based in San Francisco, but I live in the South Bay. And, uh, yeah, very new member of the community. All right. But he read the book, so... Yes. Twice, actually. Yeah. All right, cool. We also have the author of the book we're going to be talking about today, Avdi Grimm. Hey, this is Avdi. Uh, I write about software development at avdi.org slash devblog. Um, and... Uh, about distributed teams at wideteams.com and uh, I wrote Exceptional Ruby. Alright, we also have James Edward Gray. I'm jealous of Ragnarok's last name. <laughs> uh, also we have Josh Susser. Hey, hello from San Francisco and uh, let's see, I'm, uh, I blog uh, occasionally these days at blog.hasmany3.com uh, Josh Susser on Twitter, and um, I'm one of the organizers of the Golden Gate Ruby Conference, which will be happening in just like a week or two, and I'm super excited. And uh, other than that, I'm a stealth entrepreneur. All right. Yeah. And I'm Charles Maxwood. I, I just want to point out that uh, my wife just took my four-year-old to her first day of preschool and didn't want to take the baby with her, so if you hear any sounds like that... Um, he's in here, and I'm trying to keep him happy and quiet, but we'll see how that works. He's uh, trying out for the position of mascot of the Ruby Roads. Hey, there we go. He's, he's two weeks old, and he's, he's a little noisy. <laughs> so, anyway, um, today we're going to be talking about the exceptional Ruby book written by Avdi. Um, if you haven't read it, you really ought to, because it, it kind of makes you think about something that, at least in my case, I hadn't thought a whole lot about before. So, uh, you know, I highly recommend it. Um, I'm going to go ahead and let the panel get this started, and I'm going to see if I can calm my baby down real quick. So I thought I'd probably mention our bias, since uh, people have already been uh, haranguing me over Twitter uh, about it. Um, uh, it was my idea to do the Exceptional Ruby book uh, after I saw Avdi's Exceptional Ruby talk and realized how amazingly great it was. I went and read the Exceptional Ruby book and uh, was very impressed with it as well, and I thought we should do it to open up. Um, so some people have said I'm only doing this to uh, sell millions of copies of, of Avdi's book to, um, you know, uh, that, which is totally correct. Um, not because I want Avdi to make millions of dollars, but because I think everybody in the Ruby community should read this book. So, uh, that's, that's our bias. I'm heard, I've heard it's okay to be biased if you state it up front. Yes. And James, we'll, uh, we'll discuss your kickbacks, uh, after the show. Okay? That's right. Yeah. I, I do you know, <laughs> have a percentage that I'm expecting and, you know, uh, so anyways, Avdi, why don't you tell us what made you want to write this book? So, um, we're not going to make Josh uh, define what a book is. <laughs> well, I, I got to say, I love that uh, Avdi starts the book off with definitions. That's a good point. <laughs> anyway, go put that in there no, for I'm you. Not, no, I'm not defining a book definition. <laughs> All right, go ahead, Avdi. Sorry about that. Um, so, I, 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 I think the, the biggest reason that I did this um, was I felt like I sucked at exceptions. Um, I, I, didn't, I didn't know I did until I read your book. <laughs> Me too. I, that was the exact same thing. I, that logic, I need to write a lot of been, books. I had been, been you know, doing software for a while, um, and, and it seemed like every, every project that I did, I felt like I was kind of do, making the same decisions over and over again and you know making decisions about how to structure my exception hierarchy um and how to decide when to raise an exception or when to do something other than raising an exception and a lot of stuff like that i felt like 
I was kind of winging it every time and maybe making different decisions um, every time to see how they worked out. And, and, um, and I just – I felt like you know there were other things. Uh, there were a lot of sort of object-oriented design things where I felt like I had really good uh, solid rules and, and heuristics uh, for making decisions about how to structure the code. And, um, you know, based on books that I'd read or based on, on, you know, principles I discussed with other people or principles that I worked out on my own. But, but with the whole failure handling category, I felt like, um, I kept just sort of stumbling around in the dark over and over again. Um, and, uh, and I didn't really feel like I could justify, um, the decisions I'd made other than let's try it this way this time. Uh, so that was sort of increasingly bugging me more, um, as, as time went on and, um, and, you know, and I've, I've sort of realized that, uh, the best way to get good at a topic is to, um, to propose a talk about it because if the talk gets accepted, then you have to become an expert. Uh, so I, I proposed to talk about, about exceptions in Ruby and, um, and I, I first did that, uh, in front of a large art audience at, at Magic Ruby, and in uh, in Florida, and I, in the process of putting that together, I realized that I just had a ton of material um, from the research that I've been doing and from the notes I've been collecting uh, that I couldn't possibly fit into a talk, and so I decided to expand it out into a book, and uh, that's how it was born. Cool. Hey, I I want to point out that. Um well, I, I saw that talk that, that you did of the, at Ruby on Ales in April, and mm-hmm. uh, I thought it was a really good talk. And that talk just went up on the Confreak site um, a day or two ago. So we can put a link to that in the show notes so people can actually check out the, the video or the talk that you just mentioned. Yeah, and you can, you can watch me running out of time. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that was a pretty fast-paced talk. Um, and uh, which is... Kind of the reason that I decided, okay, I need to I need to find a way to, to, to talk about this stuff in a where I I'm not compressed into thirty minutes. Yeah, well, isn't it interesting too? You get the thirty minutes and you, you start like mercilessly chopping stuff out, you know, and you're like, I didn't want to leave that out, but you don't have a choice. So I I can see I can see where you're coming from there. Yeah, I mean, and I, I highly recommend the approach to uh, to people that are doing talks because once you feel like you can. Uh, once you feel like you have somewhere else that the that you know all these ideas are, um, it becomes a lot easier to start cutting things out and making your talk better by by making it shorter. I generally only write thirty minute talks, and then if they give me more than that, I just fill with jokes until it's as long as they gave me. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so why don't we get into the book and talk about it a little bit? Um, Josh mentioned the definitions at the beginning, and I thought that was really interesting. Um, it, it kind of made me think about it from two different perspectives. Um, one was just kind of redefining the terms, but the other was uh, the idea of uh, coding by contract and, and you know how that plays into what an error is and what a failure is and what a what an exception is. I agree. I really liked it as well. I have kind of a nitpick about the title. Uh, I was wondering, did I want to teach you amazing Ruby voodoo veiled inside of exceptions not fit or what? <laughs> yeah, it actually, um, that, that particular string, um, causes an obscure error in, uh, in the, uh, LaTeX, te- uh, text formatting engine. Ah, of course. Yeah. So I'm, I'm waiting for my check from Don, uh, Don Knuth. No, seriously, I think um, I, I really thought that was one of the great things about the book. I think everybody's going to look at this, look at the cover and think, oh, it's about exceptions. How freaking boring is that? And leave it. <laughs> and that was that was I, I got to admit, that was one of the initial reactions I had was like, really about exceptions? We're just going to talk about that. But then when you read the book, you realize that it's actually a wonderful book about uh Ruby, I would say strategy, actually. It really, it's a book about strategy. Uh, You know, we have this subtopic we're going to take, and that's exceptions, but let's try to come up with a series of steps that make sense that we can do 
the right things when we're faced with this kind of code. And because of that, I felt like it really improves your thinking as a Rubyist. And that was one of my big motivations for doing this book club on it, because I think it's really great that way. Yeah, I, I, I like that too. And, and the, the, the thing that I liked was how comprehensive it is in terms of sort of low level to high level. There's, there's certainly a lot of high level thinking about strategy that that is in the book and how to organize class hierarchies, uh, dealing with polymorphism, inheritance. Um, but, but there's also a lot of really low level stuff about like down to the magic constants in, in Ruby and how they interact with different stack frames and, uh, you know, interacting with things on the command line and just like a lot of really good detailed stuff that is often glossed over in, in this kind of documentation. So, uh, you know, congrats on well, that. I'm kind of, I, as somebody who pontificates a lot um, on my blog, I was, I kind of have a horror of, you know, releasing something that, that uh, is full of hand wavy, you know, platitudes about good, good design without actually um, sort of marrying that to some really hard technical knowledge. And also, I just, I'm a total language geek. Um, I mean, that's why I got into Ruby in the first place is that I just like fiddling with languages. So, um, that just reflects one of my interests is, is getting down into the nitty gritty. Yeah, I was actually going to say that's another one of my favorite things in the book is it's, it has a unashamed rubiness to it. You know, I mean, it uses some things you do not see very often, like, um, uh, you know, method, the method method, which actually lets you get a reference to a method. Uh, module new, thread local variables, kernel array, which is one of my favorite methods in all of Ruby, or hash fetch, you know, all kinds of things that are just, uh, it's very unashamedly Ruby, and I loved it for that. Yeah, one of the other things that I really um, enjoyed was just the code samples in general. I mean, you know, a lot of times you get these code samples and they're like, this dummy code that you would never consider using. And in a lot of cases, you know, even though it is kind of dummy code, at the same time, you know, it, it really gives you an example of, hey, this is something that you can do and here's how you do it. Here's how you uh, get get it, the ball rolling with it. And, you know, it, it gets you into taking over things like raise or, you know, rescue or some of these other things that, you know, you really wouldn't think about because, you know, they're just kind of ingrained in Ruby. And so instead you get, you know, you redefine warn. That, that was one of my favorites was when you redefined warn to actually raise an exception, you know, to, to get the backtrace and everything else. Um, I, I just really liked some of that, the, you know, the things that you don't think about uh, being able to do with Ruby, you kind of twist it around and make it do what you need it to do. Well, that's why that's why I love the language, or one of the reasons, anyway. Um, love a language that you that will let you um, redefine it a fair amount. Yeah, along those lines of what Chuck was saying, like you always tried to find the best way to do something, but you also weren't afraid to admit when you couldn't find it. Like the biggest example I could remember of that is um, there was a case where you actually. Uh, matched an exception based on its error message, you know, which comes out to be mm -hmm. pretty ugly and gross, but you couldn't find another way. And that was how you did it, you know? Although it, there's another, um, there's another section, which I, I probably should have put like a link from one to the other, you know, where I talk about defining sort of almost magical, uh, custom, uh, exception matchers. And, uh, and you could use one of those to make that a bit cleaner. Um, but it's still, um, it's a bit hacky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just, I really enjoyed the fact that, you know, one of the things that I remember just from reading Wise Guy is like, use what Ruby gives you. And you use every error handling facility that Ruby makes available in ways that make sense for those error handlers, as opposed to, only sticking with raise and fail or only sticking with throw and catch or only, you know, only doing one handling strategy as opposed to using the best of what Ruby gives you for the situation. Um, and that's something that I've tried to take back and bring to the projects that I work on. Glad to hear it. Yeah. 
speaking of that, has anybody used any tricks from the book? I've caught myself using two already. Yeah, I have considerably. Um, I built a, we have a background process and rather than just running it like directly from rescues perform method, um, it's now wrapped in an object that carries all of the state and the, uh, the air handling is based on, you know, asking the object if, if there was a success or failure and then uh, retries are not based on uh, logic in there. Uh, that's the one that I used most recently last week, actually. Huh. Well, what, what have you used, James? What are the two that you've done? So I use the uh, trick where um, Avdi makes a uh, error module. And Wait, you had Avdi writing your code? Yeah, obviously. Because he can <laughs> farm it. That's a, that, that's a neat trick. Uh, I use the trick where he makes an error module and then rescues the exceptions and tags them with that module so that you can raise, you know, normal I.O. errors and stuff like that, but you can rescue them as my library colon colon error, but they're still the normal exceptions, so you basically get, like, two ways to rescue them. I gotta say, that is the slickest thing I have seen in print in ages. Absolutely. Yeah, that was awesome. I'm like laying in bed reading it on my iPad and I just like got so excited. I like sat up in bed and I'm like, oh my God, that's so cool. (laughs) But it was great because I like saw where you were going and then that's where you went. I was like, yes, he nailed it. (laughs) Yeah. Now I know know what sports fans feel like. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great quote. That's awesome. uh, Yeah, I used to always use um, one of his other strategies that he gives where you basically wrap it in an exception and then you just put a attribute on it that holds the original, you know, so you can still get at the information. But, oh, man, that totally sucks compared to just mixing the module into it. So, Yeah, you know, I the more I've been looking at code since then, um, the more I'm, I've been wondering, like, how... Whether there are even cases in Ruby where nested exceptions are superior to that approach. Um, yeah, I can't really think of one. Uh, you know, I, I first kind of put it in as an alternative to nested exceptions, as you know, an int- maybe an interesting alternative. Actually, at first I wasn't sure I was going to put it in. I was kind of rolling it around in my head, and I got into a discussion um, with um, with Jim Weirich at Ruby on Ales about it, um, and he thought it was a neat idea. Um, and so I thought, well, if Jim Weirich thinks it's a neat idea, I should put, probably put it in. Um, and uh, and I've been getting a lot of good feedback since, and I haven't heard anybody say that, oh, there's a you know there's a reason that it doesn't work out well. Um, and so I'm I'm really kind of moving towards just never using nested exceptions. Instead, if I need to uh, have a, a like a dual role exception or something like that, just tag on a module. Because I mean, you don't. I, all I really show is using it as a tag, but I've. But uh, you can also, I mean, you can add a little bit of functionality if you need to in that module as well. I, um, I, I can think of one case where I did kind of use nested exceptions that maybe wouldn't adapt well. Um, I was going through and doing like a mass import, and I would rescue all the exceptions along the way and then like bundle them up. I would throw one exception, but it had like a hierarchy of everything that went wrong. That might be the one case where I would prefer the nested exception approach. That's a really good point. And that's actually something um, that somebody brought up at uh, Rocky Mountain Ruby. I, I want to say it was Tim Pease. I'm not sure. Um, that I would actually like to put in, um, if and when I do a second edition, um, the – so the you know the question is you know you have this retry um, functionality in Ruby – um, you can retry something that went wrong. And if you have like a retry loop or not a loop, but a effectively a loop where, you know, you try something three times and then you have a threshold and you say, okay, we're going to, we're just going to give up. Um, and so you, you got three exceptions in a row. Do you then, when you give up, do you raise the first exception you got? Do you raise the last exception you got? Or do you bundle them up into some kind of meta exception and raise that? And, um, you know, and, and it's – and I'm not sure what the answer is because, I mean, I can imagine a case where let's say you have um, – you're hitting a web service wrong. And so the first exception you get is um, 
four oh well heck I forget. But anyway, basically an exception saying you're you're calling this wrong. Um, and then the next two exceptions you get are stop hitting the service so fast. Um, you know, 503s or whatever. Um, if you only raise that last exception, then when you're debugging the the uh, the issues in the application, you'd be like, oh, okay, we're we're failing because because they're throttling us or because their service is slow and is having difficulty when and you might completely miss the uh the fact that the first exception was something different the first exception was a uh you know you called the service wrong um so uh, so that's something i've been kind of rolling around in my head since then using your own checklist uh which by the way i have found myself doing i now when i'm raising an exception i'm always hearing avdi whispering in my ear are you ready to end the program um, uh, one of the uh, things you do say in that list is, um, are you throwing away vital information? And so for me, exactly. that means you have to keep the first exception in some form. Right. Right. But the, the, um, you know, the, the implication, um, if you, if you do bundle that up somehow, um, into like a new meta exception type is that you might break the expectations of calling code as far, you know, previously the calling code was able to be unaware of the retry loop farther down um, because it just gets this, you know, it, it has certain exceptions that it already knows how to handle. Um, but if you bundle it up into a new kind of exception, then then you're having to uh, to handle that in a, in a new way. Um, so I'm not really sure. I can imagine a few different approaches to, to handling that. I, I think a lot of it depends too. For example, if I had a retry loop going and, uh, you know, I was just catching or rescuing and, and retrying on just the timeout error, you know, and so I did, I got that three times, you know, and I was, I was tapering off, you know, spending, waiting longer and then trying again and then finally giving up, you know, I don't think it's necessarily informative at that point to, you know, to have it basically tell you, um, you know, I, I tried four or five times and it timed out four or five times as opposed to just saying it just timed out and, you know, deal with it now because we've given up as opposed to, you know, some of these other things where, yeah, you know, you get an initial error that's or, or exception that's different, uh, you know, from from the sub, sub, subsequent ones. So I think it really depends on your, your context and your the, the problem or situation that you're in. Yeah, I mean the only the only hard and fast rule I can think of, and it's not even not even hard and fast, but but uh, I think I would always put some kind of log statement in there every time an exception is is rescued. Yeah, I, I think that's useful. I, I definitely agree with that. So can I say the other trick I've caught myself using? Please. I love his rescue dollar bang at the end of the line. <laughs> So that basically you catch an exception at the end of the line and just throw the object back so that the exception is what ends up getting assigned to your variable. So you can either carry away, carry away a success state in the variable or an exception object, which you can deal with later. I love that trick. Yeah, I was very, very happy when I found that. I, um, I, I was very close to the assumption that... Rescue that the uh, rescue statement modifier was just a bad idea all the time, and um, and then I realized that you could you could rescue error info, and can and use that as a as a an exception as a raise to return value converter, um, and and then I was very happy. I think it's interesting too that you made the point, and and this goes with what we were talking about before, um, where you talked about how nil isn't very informative. And that's usually what we wind up assigning or passing back or, you know, whatever. And yeah, it, it, it isn't very informative at all. It doesn't help you really identify what the problem is. So doing what James suggested and having it assigned to that variable and then just, you know, doing a quick, you know, management of that makes a whole lot more sense. Yeah, what I think is cool about it is people usually rescue nil and then a few lines down, they're sitting there checking, you know, if it's nil, do this, otherwise do this, which is like a special case. Alternately, you can rescue dollar bang, still do the switch if you want, you know, if it's an exception object, do this, but you still have the context of what went wrong, you know, whereas nil gives you nothing, so. Yeah, nils are the devil. I, um, I don't know, <laughs> if you've ever seen... 
you ever seen my the the other um, talk I've been doing a lot, the Confident Code talk, I talk a lot about getting rid of nils because uh, they don't tell you anything. Um, they mean so many different things, and they don't tell you anything about where they came from. And and a lot of times, um, they're sort of an excuse to break out of object-oriented land and go back into procedural land um, instead of actually coming up with an object that represents the state that the system is in. So nil literally means nothing. Exactly. That's its job. Yeah, I have that problem with the active record. Whenever you know you find you try to find an object and it's not there, you get back nil instead of something useful like you know the record with this. I you know I'd really like to know what ID of object failed to be there because obviously the system expected it to be. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm just, a big fan of of like special case objects, and I guess I I do talk about that a little bit in exceptional Ruby. Um, you know, some kind of special case, like a, a benign object that, that uh, more or less supports the same. Yeah, well, I think the, the benign value that everybody uses without kind of thinking about it is the uh, empty collection, right? Like yeah. if, you, if you do something and you get back an empty collection, then, you know, your each method is not going to right. iterate over anything. And that's and, not a bad pattern. I mean, yeah, no, 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 that's the, brilliant. And it's just it's something yeah. that people have been using kind of subconsciously that... Like when I when I read oh when I'm value hey look I found that this is a thing that everybody is doing it's just not kind of recognized by the majority of people doing it. Yeah, yeah, and I mean that's like the the comparison I always use is jQuery because jQuery has that the pretty much a concept of everything is always is always a collection, and and the wonderful thing about collections is you know well a singular object is either one or error whereas a collection is zero or more yeah. there isn't an error case in there. Right, and that that's actually a reason why kernel array is my favorite method in Ruby. Because when I yes. do run into some dumb method that's returning nils, I just wrap it in a call to array so I can treat it just like Stephen says as an empty collection. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, yep, I've I've done that. The, the the probably my least favorite method signature in all of Ruby is Active Record Base Find, which. Uh, <laughs> Which it, on failure will either return nil, return an empty collection, or raise a not fa- a record not found exception. It's a lot and, of options, Josh. Come on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, well, the the call signature is also really really crappy. It's like you can pass in an you know an ID or a bunch of options where you can you know first or all. It's it's array of IDs. The, yeah, it's the, it's a t- total kitchen sink. <laughs> the unfortunate thing is that it doesn't, as far as I know, it does not support the uh, the fetch protocol. Um, yes, which, that sucks. Fetch is one of my favorite methods in Ruby. Yeah, I mean, fetch is kind of my fetch. Is, yeah, fetch is my thing. Like, I I, mean, I find a way to to squirrel squirrel fetch into every single talk I do um, because it's such an important. Um, it's such an important idiom, you know, the idea of letting the caller decide how to handle the missing case. Yeah, it's and so And find support that. It is very Ruby. I mean, you give Ruby a block. has blocks. Right, exactly. Um, and, and, yeah, I would actually – actually, that's right. That, I'm going to have to do that. I'm going to have to go write a quick little uh, fetch for active record uh, gem if nobody's done it. Nice. The, yes, please. The, so, so, so it, in Smalltalk, the syntax for blocks was, I think, a slightly more lightweight than in Ruby because you could uh, pass multiple blocks to methods. Uh, you know, the, the keyword args made that really easy. And uh, so, so the, there were a bunch of really cool methods in Smalltalk where you would pass in um, essentially the, the, the exception handling code as a block. And that was a very common idiom in Smalltalk. And I think one of the reasons for that is that that, that, um, that style of coding came about before Smalltalk supported exceptions. And, but it was a very common thing. You'd say you know, the equivalent of you know, array um, dot, uh, select or detect, array detect. And if there wasn't anything, you, know, you would say if absent and pass in a block to evaluate if that thing wasn't there. So that's very much like fetch in Ruby. Um, but but that uh, you know here's the block that you should do if if the um, the standard case didn't succeed. Uh, that was a pretty common thing in in Smalltalk. And if you look through the through the API for if absent, you know in the in the collection protocol, uh, that shows up fairly often. And I think that would be you know it'd be nice to see more of that in Ruby. But I think that the 
the syntax for blocks makes that a little harder in Ruby. A little bit harder, yeah. Right, um, because you can't easily give a case for if it succeeds or if it fails. Yeah, right. I mean, it's getting it's getting a little bit more succinct. I mean, love it or hate it, the uh, the stabby lambda is um, is a bit more succinct for for doing one off lambdas. So that makes it a little easier to just have keyword arguments that take a uh, that take a callable. Um, but yeah, you know, at, at risk of of drifting into another topic that that's that's sort of on the list um, for the rogues. Um, it's just a great example of, you know, using that uh, a classic OO design principle: tell, don't ask. Um, right. You know, where you tell what to do in the case of of a missing element, rather than asking whether the element was missing. I loved one other thing that you really uh, talked about in the book. You know, uh, we've talked about the good Ruby stuff, like um, uh, avoiding nil and things like that. Um, this was one thing I'd not really thought a lot about until I saw your talk. And uh, you said uh, that basically begin uh, is probably a code smell uh, in cases where you see the word begin in Ruby. And then you go and show how, you know, if you're going to do a begin rescue kind of thing, then you can just go ahead and break it into a method and use the built-in nature of methods, which just let you rescue anyway. And that's sectioning off your exception code and stuff like that, which makes leads to a better design and i really liked that tip yeah i liked it too and and really the the thing that appealed to me was just that it, it it's another OO principle of encapsulation and so you effectively encapsulate both the logic and the handling stuff in the same thing which is more or less what james said but anyway it yeah, yeah it was something that i i really liked too because i can just see my code being cleaner without that being in it so i i have a question for you of the the um so in doing all the, your research and in writing the book, um, I, I expect that there, well, you, you even mentioned a couple places in the book some deficiencies in exception handling in Ruby, uh, and you talk about, oh, I wish I could do this better, but I can't. That It seems like there's a, a, a couple things that could have been better about exceptions in Ruby. Maybe you could just talk about your, your, uh, your favorite one to hate. <laughs> oh, that's a good question. Um, uh, you know, uh, despite the the talk of of tag modules, I think it would have made a lot of sense to have uh, nested nested exceptions be built in. Um, you know, so every you know exception just have exception have an original pointer that points to the original exception if it was raised while another exception was being rescued. Um, I think that would have made. That would make a lot would have made a lot of debugging cases a lot easier because um, you'd be able to see where that exception originated. Um, you know, uh, I I really like what I've seen of the Lisp exception handling system. Um, and somebody has actually there's a there's a gem called Cond, C O N D, right. uh, that that makes an effort to basically implement the Lisp uh, condition system in Ruby. And uh, I really want to have the time to play with that some more and see if it's if it's uh, you know if it's if it's something that can really be applied to production code because uh, I like the idea of not necessarily having having to always unravel the stack um, you know if you know that there's a case where you can continue on being able to just uh, tell it to continue on. Interesting. The, so, so one one of the things that. Uh that I think is a little at odds with Ruby and exceptions is the the principle of least surprise. And uh, in some sense, an exception is always a surprise. Yes. The, and, uh, you know, it's not like Java where uh, API methods, well, or every method has to declare what exceptions it might return or raise. Um, the, it, so is, is there... Is there some way you think that you can uh, min minimize the the level of surprise? That, you know, since we don't have that kind of signature. Um, I don't know. I mean, uh, well, I mean, do you mean from like the point of view of of the client of of you know that's calling some code, or from the point of view of the code that's being called? Because uh, I mean, you can do stuff on both sides of that. Yeah. Um, I, 
I, I, I think that the, the thing that I usually trip over is not when I'm calling a method that the API documentation tells me it will raise an exception sometimes. The, you know, and a lot of, and in Rails, a lot of those methods have a, have a bang, an exclamation point on the end of the method. Name, right. which, which is nice, uh, although oftentimes uh, ambiguous and confusing. Yes. Uh, but, but, when it, but when I'm using a method that itself calls a method that might raise an exception, that level of indirection makes it uh, difficult to, to plan for what exceptions you want to be handling. Yeah, and, and I mean, I think that's actually, I mean, to me, I think that's, that's in line with, with Ruby. I mean, just in the same sense that an object doesn't always know what methods it's going to be receiving because we're not a uh, just like just like we don't have declared exceptions. We also don't have you know static typing to say what protocol every object will or won't have to implement. Um, you know something that I um, a few things that that, that I, I talk about a little bit is like you know putting putting bulkheads in your code. I mean if if at the edges of your code where you start calling out to external services or third party code. Um, it's always a good idea to have some kind of bulkhead in place, which just um, captures any exception and logs it. Um, and depending on the code in question, maybe maybe re raises it or or maybe just captures it uh, or maybe enters a um, a degraded state, you know, degraded operating state um, where that subsystem is shut down or something. Um, and and that's sometimes it's the best you can do from the from the library author's point of view. Um, I'm a really big fan of no raise, no raise APIs. Um, I really like the idea of libraries that give, you know, that give the user, the the client code, the option of whether to raise an exception or not. And uh, and so I like doing things like putting a, basically putting a guard at the out on the outer methods of an API that that uh, makes sure that no no exceptions escape. Yeah, I, I, I think that uh, th this book should be required reading for everybody who writes a gem. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I made my whole office read it. Everyone who writes Ruby code. I mean, there's only like, I think there's only two of us at this point, but I, I made any coworker who wants to get their hands wet in the R Ruby code base has to read Avdi's book first. <laughs> you know, it's awesome because uh, once upon a time, I changed the API a little in faster CSV, and um, uh, there was a big fight over it, uh, and I, I fought hard and, and lost, basically. And uh, it was interesting because when I was reading Opti's book and finally got to his checklist of uh, the things you have to do before you raise an exception, I realized that I was indeed in the wrong. So uh, it was it was interesting that I had, I had violated one of those rules, you know, about are you prepared to do this if you're going to raise an exception? I'm, I'm curious um, which rule that was. Are you prepared to end the program? Right. Yeah. I, you know, I almost put a uh, like a... Uh, uh, I almost I almost used a uh, a metaphor for that, which I was a little bit wasn't sure if I was going to use because some people are a little uncomfortable with the subject. But there's a uh, the in um, in families in in a lot of like NRA families, you know, where they have where they have uh, uh, guns in the home, um, they have sort of this this small litany that they teach their kids um, about about. Uh, guns and and one of the items that they sort of hammer into their heads is you never, you know, besides for like the the gun is always loaded and stuff like that, uh, um, is uh, never point the gun at something you are not prepared to destroy. And I kind of think of I kind of think of that every time I think of that rule. It's you know never point the exception at a program you are not prepared to destroy. <laughs> That's awesome. So okay, Josh talked about earlier how he uh, he now knows the joy of sports fans because you know he saw that play coming and you, you let him <laughs> right into it and and put the ball right in his hand. I got to say, Abdi, you fumbled in one place. All right, hit me. Okay, in the threading code, you talked about how uh, exceptions are raised in a thread. And you talked about how, you know, it doesn't actually get raised when it happens. It won't really get raised until you get the value of that thread, etc. And I was uh, reading that the whole time, and I was just like Josh. I know exactly where he's going. 
He's going to show off one of the great methods, thread abort on exception, and you did not do it. I was disappointed. Oh, oh I am bad man. I, bum, I bum, actually, bum. that is bad because I actually failed to talk about a method with a name, with a word exception <laughs> in it. <laughs> That's you know, I should have just grepped through. I was going to say, that, that seems like a solution that could be solved easily by grep. Yeah, find everything about exception. Code base and look for every reference to exception. Ah. So for yeah, you know, um, that was that was that was time. Um, I kind of wanted to do, um, I kind of wanted to to talk about exception uh, exception handling and threads more, and I, I uh, but I also kind of wanted to get it out the door. So so for those uh, who don't know, just real quick, uh, thread abort on exception is a lifesaver when you're debugging. You can just do thread dot abort on exception equal true, and from that point on, if an exception is raised in a thread, instead of you hearing about it much later when you go to get the value of the thread, it just raises the exception immediately all the way up, including to ending your program. So, so you, it raises it in the main thread, right? Yes. Uh, yes. Yes. Okay. So now, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. That's gonna. That means it's gonna basically obey the same rules as like an interrupt. Well, it probably is an interrupt exception. Um, so that's gonna that's going to come out of that could come out of absolutely anywhere in your main thread, right? That's correct. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So yeah, but it's so great when you're like, because the problem is if something goes wrong in a thread, you find out about it much later when you're nowhere near the problem, you know, and that's what ends up being bad. So if you uh, if you're debugging and you just turn that thread on a board on exception true on then generally you find out about it where it actually matters, you know, when it really happened. That is a great tip, and that is going to go into the next edition. Awesome. <laughs> James, you made it to the acknowledgement section. <laughs> <laughs> that was my whole goal with this episode. Yeah. All right. Hey, hey, Avdi, I got a quick question about, um, the, uh, sort of a meta-level question, about publishing the book. It seems like... This was a, a very fat, quickly executed project for you, and yeah. you know I, I think you know, I am you know James is many of us are are writers and you know I did a book many years ago on something that nobody would ever care about now, um, but the but it, it, I want to hear you talk about the publication process and like the the ups and downs and doing it in multiple formats and supporting iPads and all that crazy stuff if if you want to take a minute or two. Okay. Um, the, the trick is compressing it into a minute or two. Um, uh, as far as the writing process, um, uh, the technicalities of that, I do all of my writing for pretty much anything, whether it's a talk or a book, um, in org mode uh, in Emacs, uh, which is kind of like a um, kind of like an outliner on crack. Um, although that's selling it kind of short. And one of the particularly interesting features it has uh, for technical authoring is uh, you, can, you can embed code uh, into, the, uh, into the text, and you can basically edit that code live um, in the Emacs mode for that code. So you know, I'm, I'm editing, the, code I'm editing the, the inline code samples in Ruby mode, uh, despite the fact that the, you know, the whole file is, is this org mode thing. Um, and... But more interestingly, you can execute the code. So like most of the book where you see the output listed after a code sample, uh, that is actually generated by org mode as it's being published. Uh, so I basically just put, put some options in about how I want the output to be treated, and it runs it through Ruby and, uh, and puts the results in line. And it can even do things like evaluate the, um, the results semantically. So there's a, there's an appendix where there's a, a table of, of system error types, and, uh, that's actually generated by the code that precedes it. Um, and, and org mode takes it and turns it into a table. So, um, so that was a, a huge help because I wasn't, I didn't have to do a lot of shifting between, uh, a code base and, you know, copy and pasting between a code base and the book. Um, I could just edit all the, uh, all the code samples in line until they, until I got it right. Um, and then, uh, the other nice thing about org mode is that it's got, uh, some very nice features for exporting to HTML and to PDF. Um, so that's all done in, uh, in org mode. And then, um, the, uh, for like Moby and EPUB, 
I um, I just take the HTML output and feed that into Caliber um, with a, a few customizations. Uh, Caliber is like a ebook uh, publishing tool, publishing and reading tool, and uh, that produces those. And I don't know what else do you want to know. So then the the Prags came to you and offered to uh, help distribute it. Um, that was kind of a a happy uh, a happy meeting. I uh, met Dave Thomas for the first time at Magic Ruby when I gave the first uh, when I when I get, first gave the talk to a big audience, and uh, so I, I talked to him a little bit, and uh, and he he seemed to like the talk, um, and then when I decided to go ahead with the book. I um, almost I sent it to a bunch of people um, to act as kind of technical reviewers, and almost as an afterthought, I I sent him a copy, um, and and he sent me copious notes back, um, for which I am forever grateful, and uh, and also you know pitched the idea of a of a collaboration. So that's, that's awesome. Cool. Self publishing for the win, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I would definitely um, definitely recommend it. Um, I think there's, I mean, there's definitely a place for um, the traditional publishing model, um, but I think there's also, you know, for things where where you know they might not have as as long of a of a lifespan. I mean, there's plenty of stuff in this book that'll be out of date um, in ten years or in five years even, um, you know, and stuff that you just want to get it out there. Uh, I think the economics of self-publishing make a lot of sense. I think I would like to see more books like this where they're small and compact and just tackle that one aspect, you know, yes. instead of what we typically publish where we try to cast so far and wide, you know. Well, that's the other wonderful thing about it. I mean, I think I think it opens up the field to that kind of thing because I, there's sort of an expectation that if you're going to do a print book, a proper book, you know, it's going to be 200 pages long or, or something, uh, and so you have to come up with a topic that you can you can either you have to come up with a topic that is that big or you have to, you know, put in filler until it's that big. Yeah, no, no, this was great. I was I was very pleased at the brevity of the book be, because it was really focused and I felt like every page had value. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to wrap this up and uh, get into the picks. Um, for, for the people who are new to this, um, the picks are really just anything that's uh, – that's interesting that, you know, we, we like that kind of makes life easier, more enjoyable. Um, it can be code related, but it isn't always. So, um, we're going to go ahead and start out with our guest. Go ahead, Steven. Um, what, what's your pick? Um, I'm actually going to have to say it's, uh, the IO programming language. Um, I've been fiddling a lot with a bunch of different languages, uh, a couple of them on the Rubinius platform, but, uh, IO is a prototype based, uh, programming language. And unlike Java, it doesn't like hide its prototypeness but uh, constructor functions. So you really just clone objects and extend them and clone them some more. Um, and it just kind of, you know, if you're not really familiar with prototypal inheritance style, it, it blows your head apart and it gives you like this whole new way of thinking about programming. And there are certain aspects of Ruby, like playing with the Eigen class where I was, I was trying to fiddle and like duplicate this prototypal style, but was unsuccessful in doing so, although I still have some tricks that I want to try. All right. It sounds interesting. Uh, um, I think there are a few of us that kind of like trying new languages. So, you know, it's always interesting to hear about new stuff and, and why it's different and why it's kind of cool. All right. We'll go ahead and let uh, Josh share his picks then. Okay, cool. So um, both of my picks are wikis um, this week. And uh, the, my first pick is the original WikiWiki website. And uh, I don't know how many people have visited it, but uh, the, you know, Ward Cunningham, the inventor of the, of the WikiWiki, um, uh, built this website. And it, it was the, uh, the knowledge repository for the, the um, a group of programmers, so it's the Portland pa Pattern Repository, and it started as a way to document design patterns. And uh, Ward built the thing as a really uh, simple little database in a Perl script, and 
there was like no versioning. If somebody came in and defaced the wiki, uh, they would just restore it from backup from the night before. <laughs> and and the, so it, there's a lot of really great stuff to look at on, on, on this website uh, at a couple levels. One is just the wealth of information about design patterns, object-oriented programming, etc. There's also a lot of uh, history that's been recorded there about the development of projects, uh, anecdotes about uh, people whose names we've all heard about, you know, like Alan Kay and Kent Beck and and uh, various others, uh, you know, luminaries in programming. Uh, but then there's also the evolution of how a, how a community uh, developed to maintain itself, document itself. You know, interact, and so there's all these conventions of communication, and uh, so it's definitely worth checking out. Uh, the, and and if you're clever, you can actually find a few of a few uh, a little bit of residue of my time spent uh, contributing there uh, way back in the '90s. Okay, so my second uh, my second pick, and I I have to apologize in advance to everyone for wasting huge amounts of your time with this pick, <laughs> is uh, TVTropes.org. Uh, so uh, this is a, a wiki that is uh, basically um, an incredible analysis of everything that is pop culture <laughs> um, in, in terms of writing and fiction. So it started off as, uh, I think, uh, you know, recording stuff about television and, and all the tropes that, pe that are used in telling stories there. And it's expanded to cover everything from comic books, movies, to professional wrestling, <laughs> and, and, and it's and it's like reading Wikipedia because you, know, you you start reading one page and suddenly there's you know fifteen or twenty tabs open in your browser that are waiting for you to read as soon as you get get done with the article you're reading, and uh, it it's just it's a huge waste of time but it's a really great way to waste your time. That sounds awesome, and I just have to plug the original Wiki Wiki because it's there is so much good stuff on there. I can't even begin to tell you how much great uh, knowledge is is stored in that thing. So, so go check them out. Okay, that's it for me. All right, James. Okay, so I'm gonna go through four things here, but they're all kind of related. So I'm gonna blow through them. Um, I have started trying to edit this podcast, as that was uh, one of the complaints I heard over and over again. Which please edit it and cut out all the times when we say, no, no, you go, no, you go, no, you go. Okay. So I've started doing that. Um, uh, and I found several things helpful in that. Uh, the first was I found a great little slideshow on the conversation network about, uh, how to edit a podcast and it gave several good tips that I ended up using and stuff. So, uh, that's a great thing. And then it led me to some of the tools I'm using. Uh, the first is, Audio Hijack Pro, which is how I'm getting the um, uh, recording out of Skype. And it's very easy to work with. You just set a few settings and it puts uh, whoever's recording on one channel and everybody else on the other channel. So uh, it's not, you know, the perfect for like a panel like this where we end up with actually four of us on one channel. But uh, it's still pretty good. And... Um, uh, that's what I used to record. Then the biggest thing this podcast needs is a level, uh, leveling out. Uh, you know, some of us come off much quieter than others. And um, the Conversation Network has a tool for that called the Levelator. And um, I use that tool to uh, level out the podcast. You just feed it a, a recorded file and it goes through and uh, evens everything out. So uh, we sound pretty close to the same. Uh, and that's a big help. And then finally, for the editor um, that I'm using to actually, you know, cut pieces of the uh, sound wave out and stuff like that, I'm using Amadeus Pro for the Mac. Um, and uh, I really liked it. I, I got about 50 million recommendations on Twitter, uh, ranging the gamut of all kinds of things to try. I, I really didn't want to spend $500 on an audio ever editor. I, I love you guys, but not that much. And um, I wanted to try something a little lower key. Uh, I liked things like Audacity, which is uh, uh, an open source version, but it's it's not very Mac-like and has kind of an odd, awkward interface. 
Um, so Amadeus Pro is kind of the middle of the road, in my opinion. It's uh, got a nice Mac interface and lets me just select parts of the sound wave, and it gives me a keyboard shortcut that I can hit, and it will play a little bit before my selection and a little bit after my selection without playing the selection. So it lets you know if you cut this chunk out, this is what it's going to sound like, and uh, that's very easy when uh, most of what I'm doing here is just cutting stuff out. So... And it has some smart editing where it tries to match them up when you paste something in. So I really like it. And those are the tools I've been using to edit the podcast if you want to try something similar. Awesome. Thanks, James. Um, Avdi, go ahead. Um, so I think uh, I think what I'll pick is a, an article that I started reading um, the other day. Uh, it's a an Oopsla uh, paper from, I think 2004 and, um, my power just went out. And so I don't have easy access to the exact title, but I'll put some, I'll, uh, it'll go into the notes. Um, but it's basically a, an experience report on using mock objects and, um, and it's talking about how to use them effectively and how to not use them badly. And uh, I think it addresses uh, – I've been thinking a lot about mocking in tests lately, and that paper seems to address a lot of the concerns that people have um, and a lot of the anti-patterns that, that people see with, uh, with mock objects. So definitely worth a read. Still working my way through it. All right. Super. All right, I'm going to go ahead and do a couple of picks. Um, so um, my first pick is a Binky. That's how I made it through this episode. Um, the the second pick is um, Google Maps. And not just Google Maps in general, but Google Maps on my phone. Um, it really made a huge difference when I was trying to find my way around um, some of the towns and things that I was uh, driving through. When I drove out to Boulder for Rocky Mountain Ruby, um, I wound up going through Woodland Park to visit a friend of mine, and then um, just finding my way through Boulder was kind of a hassle. And uh, having that and just you know being able to basically use it as a, a GPS turn-by-turn directions was, was really, really handy. And so, uh, so those are my picks this week, and hopefully I'll have something a little more technical next week. But. So was the binky for you or the baby? Well, you know, I, I, I was I had to try and not cry on my own. Awesome. But uh, anyway, so I think that's it. So we'll uh, we'll go ahead and wrap this up. I want to thank our panelists again for coming onto the show. Um, did did we want to say something about picking a book for next book club? Ooh, good idea. Yeah. You got a suggestion, Josh? Uh, well, um, David's not here, so uh, in his honor, I'm going to suggest uh, small talk best practice patterns. Okay. Is it, are people cool with that? Small talk best practice patterns. Sure. Yeah, it's, it's not a Ruby Definitely. book, but I, I think it's a, it's a great book for Rubyists to read by Kent Beck. All right. In, in my experience, it is one of the most re- recommended software engineering books of all time, so it's about time I read it. Okay. <laughs> Me too. I have not read it. Sounds good. We'll try and get it in the first or second week of next month. We'll put details up on the blog so that people can get it, rubyrogues.com. And uh, also next week we're going to be talking with Jim Wyrick. Um, He mentioned to me at uh, Rocky Mountain Ruby that a lot of Rails developers don't actually program in object-oriented manner. (laughs) So so I told him, okay, well, why why don't you come on and talk about it? So that's what we're going to talk about next week. So so don't miss it. And uh, anyway, so our panelists are uh, in no particular order. Uh, James Edward Gray. Bye, everybody. Thanks. Uh, Stephen Ragnarok. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. It was a lot of fun. Thanks, Stephen, for joining us. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. Thanks, Avi, for, for writing a book that makes sense out of one of the more, what I had treated as the more hideous parts of programming exceptions have always irked me. Basically because, you know, people use them in non-exceptional cases. And you talk <laughs> yeah. about that a lot. Well, I, I typically yes. fall in the other direction where I just ignore them. You know, I just don't even bother <laughs> using them, you know. Oh, so you wrote NetHTTP and it just throws exceptions willy-nilly. doesn't concern itself with...
anything. Oh my God, what a headache. I had a bulkhead in front of NetHDP. I just caught everything. That's what you have to do. Uh, anyway, thank you guys. Avdi Grimm. Thanks a lot. Josh Susser. So long, folks. And I'm Charles Maxwood. Um, if you want to get the show notes, you can get them at rubyrogues.com. You can also find us in iTunes. And uh, I would really appreciate it if you leave us a review. And uh, tell us how good James is doing on the editing. Um, and, then, and that's about all we've got. So we'll go ahead and wrap this up. And we will uh, catch you next week. Oh, there is one other thing I was going to mention that I just realized um we're actually behind a couple of episodes that's my fault since i'm the one that gets them up and we had a baby and then i was at rocky mountain ruby and just anyway things kind of fell through so you might get two or three episodes at once (laughs) uh just as fair warning so uh if that's the case and you feel like you're behind i apologize but we want to get the the content out to you so uh anyway that that's pretty much all we've got we'll catch you next week thanks for listening bye everybody